hello and welcome to the Poetry Pause, a podcast made from a cowshed in West Wales. I'd like to welcome Emma, my co-presenter this morning. Hello, good morning. How are you? Yes, I'm good. How are you? And we have a guest today called Lewis Griffiths. He's not a poet, but he is a writer and he's also a vet. And today we're going to be chatting about Aris Thomas, prolific but not necessarily well-known Welsh poet compared with the other Thomas, that is. And he has been variously known as the cantankerous clergyman, the fiery poet-priest. And in 2014, he unwittingly appeared in a Tyrrell's Crisp promotion where the company found a photograph of him online, a stock photograph, had no idea who it was and used his photograph to illustrate a fleeting look of contempt. <laughs> so, what a claim of fame. This yes. great Welsh man of letters <laughs> was reduced to being um, a promotional image on a crisp packet. Now, Lewis, you have written a book, haven't you? And... In, in the final process of writing a book, I think, if we're being precise, still editing. R.S. Thomas has had an influence on this book, hasn't he? What I, what I did, I was, I was in New Zealand in lockdown when I started writing this book. And I, the, the first part of the book is very much connected to Wales and, and the history of Wales probably 100 years or so ago. And I sort of needed to connect back into Wales because I hadn't been in the country for more than 12 months. So I thought, where do I go? And I immediately thought of R.S. Thomas uh, from my O-level days, from, from my farming background. And I thought, who else can I read just to get back into the mood of Welshness? And I ended up finding all sorts of snippets and ideas and images from his poetry, which ed- ended up, I think from memory, it, they, they open every little chapter, there are about six chapters to this book. And I've managed to get an R.S. Thomas quote, which sort of introduces virtually all of them. Oh, great. So... Did Aris Thomas have a big impact on you when you were a kid? As a poet, I mean, I was introduced to poetry, I guess, through English literature O-levels. And then there were a, a pantheon of poets that in, we were exposed to, including the other Thomas and uh, Larkin and Auden and people like that. I immediately connected to Aris Thomas because here was a guy writing about things that I knew. I was born on a little Welsh farm a mile up the road. And, you know, Iago Prilch was my grandfather, I think, you know, sort of hacking away at the the, the garden and, yeah, and, and yeah. chasing the sheep around the field. So there were a lot of images there that I could connect to very easily. And and they, then I, I revisited them, I guess, when I was looking to reconnect to Wales. Excellent. So, Emma, what do we know about him? How would you describe him? Unlike some of the other poets we've discussed, I don't remember the exact point at which I first came to R.S. Thomas. Like Lewis just said, it for me, I feel like he's always been around, like he's almost part of the hills around me. He's got a kind of public image as a kind of cantankerous older man, but he actually came to poetry when he was much younger and working as a, a clergyman. And so I suppose we're kind of surrounded by this mythology of him and, and what he was like. And he too is, seems like almost part of the landscape, rugged and, you know, definitely Welsh. 
Yes, yeah. I mean, he sort of looks to me like an Old Testament prophet or something, doesn't he? <laughs> Jeremiah or, yeah, yeah. or Isaiah or someone. Yeah, yes. and if you had a kind of religious Welsh upbringing, then I remember sort of pictures of prophets and they sort of looked like him, didn't they? Wild hair, tall, rangy, bit of a mad look in, in, in the eyes yeah, kind of thing. fiery eyes, definitely. Yeah, 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 yeah. So... He was born in Cardiff, wasn't yeah, he? Yeah. And then the, I think the family moved to Hollyhead. Yeah. His father was in Merchant Navy or involved with shipping, I think. Yeah. yeah so yeah. hence the move to Hollyhead. Your family based in shipping. Were they in the Navy? Uh, my great uncle, about the, the book I've been writing, is based roughly on his, his life story. He, he joined, joined the Royal Navy off the farm. Most uh, of my family were, were farmers and, and miners and... and Maybe a few builders chucked in there. So yeah, uh, yeah, but yeah. yes, the connection with the navy is something I've always been a little bit interested in in the sea, yeah. even though I'm not a sailor. Yeah, and uh, I was quite surprised eventually to find that connection to to Great Uncle Jim Bowen uh, and and his very strong naval career, which uh, yeah. has occupied a lot of his life. Yeah, yeah, I suppose it shouldn't surprise us really with Wales being such a coastal country. Yeah. Right. I mean, we have got a heck of a lot of coastline as well mm. as sheep, haven't we? <laughs> so, and he he read Latin at Bangor and then was ordained in Landaff and became an Anglican curate, which is quite interesting, isn't it? Because the Anglican Church is not as powerful in Wales as as perhaps nonconformity or not as popular. Mm. Well, certainly in the, in the time he was, was writing the bulk of his work, I mean, yes, I think you're right. I mean, I don't, I don't know how powerful any of the churches are these days. Yeah, but, um, yeah, yeah. Um, but um, nonconformism, particularly, I guess, the Baptist faith and Wesleyan churches were... were very strong. Yeah. I haven't read, or it's not to say he didn't have one, but I haven't read of him having any sort of profound religious conversion or anything like that. There seems possibly to have been an element of pragmatism mm. in his career choice. <laughs> yes, yes he, cause he actually said that, didn't he, that working in the church or being part of the church allowed him lots of time to write which and time to think, which... Sounds mm. like it was convenient. Yes, yeah, yeah. Because he, he developed in, in his later life, didn't he, quite a set routine of working, writing every morning, and that was absolutely sacrosanct. And and he'd go out walking and bird watching, which was his great passion. And then he'd go and see parishioners, I think, between five and eight kind of thing. And yeah. A bit like Lewis on his animal rounds. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> They were done all night, all day. <laughs> there was no time for writing. No, 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 no. You, you would never have that comfort and that um, <laughs> that containment in mm. your in the demands on you. And he married his wife Elsie Eldridge in 1940, and she was an artist, wasn't yeah. she? Have you got any views on her or any insights? I think that we don't hear a lot about her work after they marry, and he actually said in his one of his autobiographies that he and then we got married or that or then I married there's no kind of no romantic emphasis on that although a lot of his later poems to Elsie are some of the most I don't know poignant expressions of love that I can imagine reading yeah. from any poet yeah um, and it just I think his marriage and his life and his education and his membership of the Anglican Church, they all build up this kind of 
massive contradictions that we yeah. associate with yeah. Paris Thomas. Yeah, because he sort of moved from parish to parish, didn't he? Yeah. And I don't know if either of you have read the Byron Rogers autobiography, The Man Who Went Into the West. And yeah. this he had this biography written about him by Byron Rogers, who was a journalist. And it's an extraordinary biography. It is creative nonfiction, which mm. is very popular today. He even does things like imagines the local newspaper headlines when RS and his wife have been found on the point of hypothermia yeah. in one of their cottages because they're living one degree above freezing. Right, you know, he yeah. actually creates an imaginary. It's, okay. it's irritated some critics because it's not overly focusing on the facts. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but it's extremely entertaining. And I'm not a, a reader of biographies usually, but I couldn't put this down mm-hmm. because it's about a misfit, really. It's the journey of somebody who never quite fits in anywhere. Right, but, you know, yeah. maybe that's why he was a great poet. Yeah. <laughs> so it's fascinating. He self-published his first, I think, three books of of poetry and then he had a breakthrough with a book called Song of the Year's Turning because the foreword was by John Betjeman and he won the Heinemann Award from the Royal Society of Literature, Queen's Medal for Poetry and he was nominated for the Nobel 1966 but he was beaten by Wishflava Zimborska who we've already done an episode on. And then he won another award in 1996 for literary achievement. So he moved around. He was working as this parish priest and he was writing his his poetry. Do you, I'll ask you first, Lewis, do you have a sort of overview of his poetry? Is there a particular type of of poetry that you like that he's written, particular themes? What's your kind of take on it? Yeah, I mean, the book of poems, (laughs) the collected poems here is a very thick book and there are a lot of poems. I guess that the two themes that I link to most easily, one are the the rural farming background, the, you know, the sheep on the hill and the gaunt landscapes, and that that I connected to, that was my original entry point, if you like, to Aris Thomas. The other one, which I find fascinating, is his his Welshness, his undoubted Welshness. On one hand, you know his his, his nationalism in, in the, with a small n, and you know there are poems about Glendora and, and um, Llewellyn and so on, and yet there are the scathing, bordering on bordering on snobby attitude towards the Welsh peasantry, if you like. Yeah. So the, that to me is, and that links back to the, the rural environment again. So those two themes, I, I find, I've, I've been flagging a few poems in, in, in the book. Yeah. And very much the first third or so of his writing career, and those themes are very dominant through yeah. that period. Yeah. And the um, the contrast between, yeah, very undoubted Welshness. Yeah. But also the attitude towards, you know... Uh, a rather scathing attitude, I guess. Yes, yeah. I mean, it is fascinating because he's got a very posh English voice, hasn't yeah. he? We met under a shower of bird notes. So that's definitely a contradiction. What about you, Emma? You've mentioned the love poems already. What's your sort of overall take? Yeah. I think that even within the kind of Yago Pradesh 
poems and things. This even contradiction within those. He's both identifies with him and sets himself apart and judges him, but also sees him as part of the landscape. Um, you know, in a gap in the hedge, he says, sharp eyes, bright as thorns. Do you want to say what the Iago Prithich poems are? So um, they are, Iago Prithich is a kind of made-up character that is also tries to encompass all of the kind of tenant farmer type people like that R.S. Thomas sees around him or the speaker in his poems does. And he writes a lot about him, sometimes more complimentary than others. Like, he refers to him a lot as peasant. But he also sees him as kind of part of the landscape. Mm. Um, he says, that man Prithich with the torn cap, sharp eyes, bright as thorns. Or was it a likeness that the twigs drew with bold pencilling upon the bare piece of sky? He's almost... I think there's a kind of jealousy there as well, that because he feels set apart in these different ways, he wants to be part of the Welsh landscape. And he, he actually said that he likes the land, he loves the Welsh landscape more than he does the people, that he's angry at the people, that they don't see how colonialism kind of took the Welshness away. Yeah. So I don't know, there's a kind of always a kind of this pulling this tension between wanting or longing to be part of something that he's not fully yeah but angry at the people who are more fully part of that for not realizing who and what they are yes he, he is extraordinarily contradictory isn't yeah, he yeah. Mm-hmm. but also i think the significance of a religious leader in the community was considerable, wasn't it, earlier on, and, and sort of even towards the end of the of the last century, they were prominent figures. Oh, absolutely, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. I still remember as a child, and I was brought up in, you know, the Baptist chapel sort of thing. But but the minister coming to that house, yeah, was was a significant event. Mm-hmm. And the best yeah. china came out, and and the yeah, uh, yeah. we were we were all dressed up because the minister might call in this evening or something. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I remember Progesor James Thomas of Tabernacle Chapel, how we were sort of uh, very reverent and slightly scared of him. Yeah. And my parents met through chapel. I mean, I think a lot of older generations did. That was the so only did thing. Mine. Yeah. Gave <laughs> Sunday school trip, I think. But then he, he also didn't teach his son Welsh and sent him to an English language boarding school so yeah, yeah. I don't know. there's just so many threads and so mm. many contradictions there's, you mentioned his anger at the peasantry in terms of of being unable to realize their welshness or accepting of yeah. the colonialism yeah. and yet the other half of that story i think is there's also a deep shame almost mm. there's, there's a poem a welshman to any tourist which starts off we have nothing to offer you but i, I like the bit towards the end uh, but he says being pocked with caverns, one being Arthur's dormitory. He and his knights are the bright ore that seems our history, but shame has kept them late in bed. Oh, <laughs> <And> that's <laughs> great, isn't mm. it? So and it works on so many levels. Yeah. It's quite funny. Uh, yeah. At the same time, there's that shame has kept them in bed. That yeah. Arthur can't wake up. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. There's quite a few people would like to revive that poem after the mm-hmm. summer we've had <laughs> in yeah, West yeah, Wales. Right, yes. 
anything else about his contradictions? I think that it's a contradiction in itself, the way he he says what he thinks. He don't, There's no sitting on the fence at all with him. But, like, through his collected poems, this shifts, you know, and he becomes contradictory through what he thinks and what he what he says and that can be from one poem to the next mm, yeah. but we you know we think so much that people are one thing you know but they're not and I could wake up this morning and feel completely different to how I will tomorrow morning or just say something off the cuff or I'm sure he didn't say anything off the cuff I think everything was well thought through but human beings change don't they they shift and they are contradictory mm. and I think that because he's known that can be a problem because we think people are what their public persona is. Uh, yeah. And as we just discussed, you know, if he's a priest and has to hold that authority in the community, he's also a human being who has personal relationships and he's also a known poet with a different public persona. So I think a lot of his work is spent kind of keeping away from all that and just creating poetry that says what he thinks and feels at that moment in time. I think contradiction is actually origins of creativity, you know, being, I I think if you sort of wake up every day a really happy bunny, then, you know, perhaps you don't have anything in your soul that needs expressing. Whereas I think, you know, contradiction is kind of vital. I mean, it's like, all the drama sand. revolves around conflict, doesn't yeah. it? You know. The sandpaper of art, maybe, is that a yes, that sounds good. <laughs> yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he certainly had plenty of that, didn't he? Yeah. When he moved to Egloisvach, which mm. he and Elsie didn't like the look of the chapel there, mm. so they painted it all matte black, all the pews and everything, to the horror of many of the parishioners, and it still is black today. Mm-hmm. They took a sort of aesthetic judgment about it. But there was a Major General Lewis Pugh there, who was a sort of posh member <laughs> of um, the congregation, and he felt that R.S. Thomas's sermons were much too gloomy, and they sort of went to war at each other. And uh, unfortunately, Byron Rogers points out that is some sort of commemoration stone or something still in Egloisvach to Major General Lewis Pugh but nothing, nothing to arrest to oh. Thomas oh, no. <laughs> you know arguably his legacy went elsewhere but <laughs> but it, it it is interesting so and he got involved with the pacifist movement and, and nationalist views didn't mm. he that's interesting too though isn't it that he seems like such a solitary figure in some respects but he was part of bigger movements and got onto kind of committees, the protection of red kites and the CND movement and things. Mm -hmm. So that is another contradiction. Yes. And, I mean, he he does seem to have had a sense of humour. There's a... Oh, absolutely. Gwyneth Lewis, the poet, she was at some symposium in Spain and R.S. Thomas turned up and she said, what shall I call you? And he said, call me Ronaldo. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. John Gower happened to meet R.S. Thomas when he was a young warden on Bardsey 
and a keen bird watcher and they bird watched together then for yeah. decades afterwards yeah. said he was one of the very few truly funny people that he'd met yeah. there's a wonderful photograph of him with Gwydion, the son, and the son is about three with sort of blonde curls and looking really gorgeous and kind of pastoral. And in the background is this hunched figure with a scythe, who we presume is R.S. Thomas. Yeah. And on the back of the photo, he's written, we presume it's him, Gwydion and the Grim Reaper. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, yeah. so, you know, there was this, this sort of detached thing that made him funny, didn't yeah. it? Well, men at Elven actually... Uh, tells a similar story about about being in Spain and him turning up and he'd forgotten a shaving kit and he thought he looked like he had a hedge growing on his face. And she tells the story of the two of them, her with a little bit of Spanish and him with none, trying to buy a shaving kit in Barcelona. <laughs> um, so, yeah, he was a funny... Uh, to his friends and people he knew well, I think. Very dry sense of humour. Just back to his life now, and then we'll really focus in on the poetry. Elsie did an amazing painting. Um, she was very talented and seems to have been very loved. She had a commission, didn't she, for a 95-foot allegory called The Dance of Life. She was paid £900 for it, plus <laughs> £138 materials. And it was designed for Gobbo in Orthopaedic Hospital. And it includes themes like the coming of the machine, the its destructiveness, lots of things that were to later appear in R.S. Thomas's work. And indeed, she introduced him to people like Edward Thomas, poets like that. This wonderful work of art, because it is an amazing creation, is now on display at Glyndwr University. So if anybody's interested, you can see Elsie, I think, has been a bit overlooked, really, yeah. in the sort of... Yeah, I'd no, be interested to see that yeah. because you don't hear as much about her work, do you? No, you don't, no. Anyway, she died, sadly, after they'd had many happy years together and then he married when he was, I think, 84. Okay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then he married Betty Vernon, who was 80 and she was a hard-drinking, smoking, fox-hunting <laughs> socialite who'd lived in a house with 40 bedrooms, right. you know, with her previous uh, very wealthy husband. And I don't think she liked the cottage much because they then started gadding about and being very sociable. Right, OK. But <laughs> by all accounts, you know, they seem to have really, in for a few years, four years, I think, they really enjoyed each other's company, so... <laughs> So he went out in fine style, really. Absolutely. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit more now then about about the poetry. Do you have any favourite poems particularly that you'd like to talk about? I've, I've already mentioned that poem, Welsh History, which I, I referred to quite a lot when I was writing the book as well, but it's one that I, I keep going back to. Mm. And um, it, to me, it is an interesting poem in that... Um, it's got that image of the people where people taught for war, the hills were no harder, the thin grass closed them more warmly than the coarse shirts, our small bones. And then further on, and this is interesting, we've mentioned the pacifism already, we were a people wasting ourselves in fruitless battles for our masters, in lands to which we had no claim, with men for whom we felt no hatred. And I particularly love that line. And, and 
for me, having spent, uh, as I think we've already mentioned, I spent quite a lot of my time in New Zealand. Yeah. And that parallel with him, uh, you know, uh, talking of the the other lands and the battles you think of India, you think of Rourke's Drift and yeah. we're Welshmen, we're fighting yeah. for the empire. Yeah. And indeed in New Zealand, you know, the, the parallels between the, the Maori people in New Zealand who are, you know, undergoing colonialisation and the Welsh had been colonised for a thousand years. Yeah. A, a very interesting parallel. Yes. I come back to that poem and I, I, I you know, try to follow that a little bit in, in the book. So do you think there's a sort of naivety in in the Welsh or in smaller races? I, I think there's almost inevitability. You know, when you look at the economic power and, and the, you know, the yeah. length of the border that Wales has with England. Yeah. And, and, uh, and let's face it, the, the English kings were not exactly backwards in coming forwards. No. Whether, you know, that sort of need to dominate. So I think the, the colonialisation of Wales, and probably Wales was the first significant colony of England, post-Norman times. Isn't yes. It? Um, yeah. There was an inevit- inevitability about it. Yeah. But, yeah, Horace Thomas, I think, struggles particularly with that inevitability. You know, he's still looking for Arthur to rise and, and for the, yeah. the Welsh conscience to, to flare. Yeah. Uh, and then feels that, that shame and, and that, which coming from a pacifist. Yes. <laughs> it's it's yes. complex, isn't yes, it? Yes, it is complex. Yeah, there's mm. a really good book by a historian at Swansea University, Martin Jones, and he did a TV series about Wales and its colonial history. And mm-hmm. it's just excellent, actually. Because... You can allow yourself to be colonised, can't you? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yes. Well, um, sometimes not even realising that it's going on. You're probably taking a job and money to get bread on the yeah, table. Right. And... Yeah, for, for the best sort yeah, of thing. Yeah, it must yeah, be for the best. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, and that was the theme I follow with, as I say, the book based roughly around my great uncle, the the need to get off the poverty-stricken Welsh farm and, yeah. and make money. And if you weren't going to go down the mines, well, yeah. the Navy was a good option. We should talk about this book now. What's it What's it called, your story? The, the book is called the, the Bell That Never Rang, which was has got several themes through it. As, as you've been kind enough to read it for me, Pip. But yeah. It does follow uh, the life of my, my great-uncle Jim Bowen, who was born um, not far from here. Spent his early years on a farm, and then, as I say, in the, in the late 1800s, when farming in Wales was getting pretty tough, and they had a lot of dry summers. Yeah. I partly imagined the story, but I know the history, and, and he joined the Navy as a young lad. Yeah. And worked his way from the, the bottom of the Navy. Yeah. Um, eventually serving as, as a petty officer at the Battle of Jutland on, on a ship called HMS New Zealand. And I, 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 having spent a lot of my life in New Zealand, I, I couldn't get away from the fact that here's a... Sh- I found out that the, the actual the ship HMS New Zealand was bought by the New Zealand government as one of the first flexing of, of the country's wings to say, right, we're big enough now that we can start yeah. defending ourselves. And the ship visited New Zealand oh. uh, in 1913, and my uncle was on that uh, yeah, yeah. on that trip. So I write about that quite a lot. So there were a number of, a number of threads coming yeah. through it. Well, I try and build a little bit of a, a storyline around it, exactly the dichotomy that was Jim Bowen that yeah. Boris Thomas writes about as well. In that yeah. way, very Welsh man. He spoke Welsh. His his mother was was from the north of the county and was Welsh speaking. And to the end of his days, he, he was he was a proud Welshman, and yet he was in the navy. And then ended up talking to people, I imagine, in New Zealand, married people in New Zealand, who were just beginning the colonial process that he'd fully accepted and, and was there. Yeah. If necessary, he would have been ordered, you know, to uh, to fight the, the married yeah. people for the king. So yeah, 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 yeah. It's, um... it's interesting, isn't it? <laughs>
What about you, Emma? Have you got a favourite? My favourites are the later poems to Elsie. Yeah. Because I feel like through the rest of his work, he's building up to this point of trying to sort through his own mind, his own contradictions, his own beliefs, and hone down the poetry so it's very simple and pure. His All of his work is kind of... The language is chosen very precisely. But I feel that in the loss or dying of Elsie, he manages to achieve what he's been trying to do the whole time. It's honed down to two people, his relationship with one other person, and the language is very simple and very beautiful and very pure. In 70th birthday, he says, I lean far out from the bones bow, knowing the hand I extend can save nothing of you but your love. And it's just Mm. him, her, and I just, I find it a heartbreaking collection, the the whole thing. Yeah. There's that poem, A Marriage, isn't there? That's really yeah. moving. And she who in life had done everything with a bird's grace opened her bill now for the shedding of one sigh no heavier than a feather. Oh, it's really poignant, actually. Yeah, so the love poems are really lovely, aren't they? I don't know if he wrote any to Betty. Perhaps he was too busy having a good time <laughs> catting about. After I finished <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Betty did sound like a bit of a laugh, actually. It's funny... I felt sort of a bit swamped getting ready for this episode with all the poems and everything. And I thought if I had to pick one that really sums him up for me, it would be one that I think only he could have written. And that's the one about Evans, the Evans, the farmer, which starts with... Evans, yes, many a time I came down his bare flight of stairs into the gaunt kitchen. And then it ends with... It was the dark, sitting the veins of that sick man I left stranded upon the vast and lonely shore of his bleak bed. And I thought, gosh, that is a minister visiting. That is, only he, I think, might have written that. You know, it's uh, so evocative, isn't Mm. it? And, and, yeah, the the vast and lonely shore of the bleak bed... To me, as a minister, there's almost an element of religious doubt in that ending as well. Yes. Because presumably this is him visiting a dying um, parishioner. Uh, And yet you'd feel as if he were a strongly religious minister, he'd be leaving, you know, there'd be some angels hovering around the corner and a bit of glory, glory sort of coming through, you know. Yes, yeah. It's almost like... He's, this man is is fading away, and I can't do anything you know, about he, it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, that is a very interesting aspect: religious zeal or lack of. Mm. I mean, he's quoted as saying he believes at the heart of both religion and poetry is imagination. Right. And of course, a lot of people who are well, what would you call them, religious ministers, religious practitioners, whatever. It's not about imagination, it's about absolute certainty. Mm, Yeah. But he didn't have that, did he? No, no, I mean, that that, the word faith, I guess, you know, which is central to a lot of people's belief, you know, I don't think his faith was very strong. No. It was certainly a wavering candle if it was was there. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Well, he told Byron Rogers, when he was asking Byron Rogers about what was it like working as a journalist, the good thing about the church was it looked after you quite well. Yeah. (laughs) So, and you know, in Mm. some 
ways. I think it does sound like the an idyllic life. You just mm. got to work for these three hours. Yeah, right. <laughs> not not three like hours that. On Sunday, and a couple of visits for the week, <laughs> yeah. you know. Mm. And the rest of the time, you're marauding around Wales with your binocs <laughs> and a, yeah. a pen and a <laughs> bit yeah. of paper, yeah. uh, writing poetry and looking at birds. Fantastic. I mean, today, a lot of people would love that life. It's a yeah. bit like being on furlough, really, isn't it? <laughs> it is. Yeah, yeah. I mean, something I wanted to ask you. Lewis, because I think you've probably got more experience than either of us in this, is his view of rural folk and these hill farmers as kind of often quite naive, simple folk. In your experience as a vet, is that true? That's uh, that's an interesting question. I mean, I, I think the first thing I would say it's changed a lot in the last, you know, the time I've been, I've been a vet, well, I'm a retired vet now, but over that sort of 40 years, there have been phenomenal changes in the Welsh countryside. Yeah. So that now the, the sort of farms that I think he's writing and experience, experiencing, which would have been what the, the 40s and the 50s and 60s in, in Wales, were, there aren't many of those left now. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of, most of them are probably converted into holiday cottages and the neighbour and the next door has bought, you know, mm-hmm. enough to assemble three or 400 acres. Otherwise, mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. E- economics doesn't work. But certainly I caught the tail end of that in, in North Pembrokeshire in, in the 70s. I can think of several farms that were hanging on, if you like. The only reason they were there was through absolute hard work and an absence of debt or significant debt because the farm had been inherited. Yeah. Facilities were primitive. And uh, you know they had they had the fifty sheep and the, the five cattle and a few pigs and and, mm. and really yeah so I think of the time he was writing there was very little difference between the standards if you like of the farming and and probably two three hundred years before yeah you know? yeah and and the the hill farming especially is you know where you have sheep on a hill and and the routine the cycle of the year of, of, of a sheep is a very rigid one Mm-mm. there's um well that. It goes on to a fair degree still, but mm. I think the facilities and the, and the 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 technology that's been applied to that farming yeah. has changed. The yeah, yeah, yeah. Everybody's whizzing around on quad bikes up there yeah. now, aren't they? Well, I just I just walked the Glendure Trail, which takes you right through the middle of of, of Wales, really through some phenomenal country. Yeah, and even it's basically one long farm walk. Yeah, and there's some incredible farming going on up there. There's some really good productive farming going on. And then you turn a corner onto the next hill and it probably hasn't changed yeah. for 40 years, you know. Yeah. But um, it's still changed a lot compared to yeah. what he was writing about, yeah. the size of holdings and the size of, of people. The next generation yeah. basically didn't want to live in cold houses with um, with tin baths in front of fire and the tea bath at the bottom no, of the garden. No, and who can blame them? <laughs> <laughs> okay, great. Fabulous. It's a sort of response to the poem, I guess, this this poem, Welsh History particularly the lines, We fought and were always in retreat, like snow thawing upon the slopes of Minimawr, and yet the stranger never found our ultimate stand in the thick woods, declaiming verse to the sharp prompting of the harp. Our kings died while they were slain by the old treachery at the ford. Our bards perished, driven from the halls of nobles by the thorn and bramble. And this is actually based on a little experience. As I said I, I worked, worked the Glendur Trail. Yeah. And um, this is written actually at the grave of Llewellyn at Griffith, Ooh. Abbey Come Here. Solemnly I walked onto the Abbey grounds, as distantly two departing figures were framed by ruined walls. English tourists, I sneered, cropped T-shirts and scanty shorts, 
lacking respect for the sanctity of this place, knowing nothing of the betrayal at the ford. But approaching the marble slab under which it is reputed most of the prince's body lies, I found that they had left two faintly fluttering flags, a Welsh dragon and Llewellyn's gold lion standard. I heard fading words on the evening dew and thought they might be speaking Welsh. Deep darkness clings to abbey walls and suddenly I am awake to see a white charger proudly pawing at the ground and hear the clash of steel, the sword gripped strong in warrior's hand. Or was it just a swirl of river mist and a gate chain clinking in the night? After the assassination, devoted monks buried most of Llewellyn's remains here. But his head was left for years to glower on a blood-stained spike outside the tower. <laughs> Great! I love it! I love it! It's really good! It's very vivid and gripping, and you read it really, really well. Excellent! I think maybe we should start a kind of revival in sort of, um, you know, slightly nationalist poetry. <laughs> the movement, yes. definitely. No, that's really good. Emma? So mine is influenced by The more the poem, and also a response to reading R.S. Thomas generally. It's called T. Cannell. I walk this path all sown with devotion, It foams like chamomile, still to no bloom. Green waves lap the walls, hold something back, where boundaries shift moss moons, more ripple than stone. Snug in their sweaters, sun on their backs, they curve to day's last light, spare and low, rare as gold. I sniff the ground, tucked in this weave with something twigs, what it is to live, sinuses fusty with mushrooms, nose pushed high into the gills. An energy of cells lets the breath swell to stillness, deep in the sponge of my lungs. I tow the leaf mould, finger oaks rut, wrung with knowing in the shade of her canopy, Branches rise like arms in praise, or spattered leaves, sky-scattered jigsaw pieces, made right in a zing of birdsong. Great, I love that. I love a zing of birdsong. <laughs> some lovely textures and aromas in that as well. Yeah, 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 really. Spongy, spongy lungs, spongy lungs. Yeah, lungs. yeah, yeah, really evocative, L- lovely, great. Okay, that's grand. Thank you ever so much. <laughs> I think his contribution is that, actually, ironically, he was quite a pioneer. Although we hear a lot about how he kind of looked backwards and didn't want modern technology to come into his life and things like that, I think he was always striving for a kind of poetic minimalism or a clear space in his head, which is actually a very modern, forward-looking, forward-thinking idea ideology and he didn't he refused to play the game he didn't he wasn't going to play this kind of media game he was authentically himself and that shifted as everybody's does and so i find him quite his legacy quite refreshing yeah yeah i mean good writers do work out their problems in sort of public and through their writing, don't yeah. they? They are asking questions yeah. and being very open. What do you reckon, Lewis, to his contribution? Yeah, I would say 
I mean, the contribution in a literary sense, I mean, you don't get nominated to the, to the Nobel Prize without having achieved something in, in your life. You know, that's sort of, you can double underline him in red as a significant poet for, for that reason, if none other. I would like to think, and my, my sort of relationship with Wales has, has changed over the years because I've been out of it and now I'm back. There is a change in, in the thinking in Wales. I think there is a change in national pride, national identity. And I wonder if people will revisit his poetry and actually start to read some of the the very fervent poems about Welshness, you know, mm. with that undercurrent of shame. And mm. I, you just wonder whether he may not actually have some form of, of resurgence as well. Yes. I think his, his contribution in that area is, 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 well, I find it fascinating. Yeah, yes, it is extraordinary because he was sort of so open and direct in it, wasn't he, about his views? And, I mean, if you think about... You know, we're recording this at a time where Wales has got a very different government from the UK government, mm -hmm. very different politically. The Yes for Wales movement is growing in support and interest. There's quite a lot of people in the mm -hmm. Labour Party are interested in mm -hmm. what an independent Wales might look like. like. Yeah. Yeah. So the time is very appropriate to have a RS revival. Perhaps we'll spearhead it with this podcast. <laughs> yeah, who knows? Revival's an interesting word as well. We're talking about fundamental religion before, you know, yes. so we'll forget that. We'll have the poetry yeah, revival now. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, so anything else before we wind up? Any other points you'd like to make or comment on? Any one I'm mean, talking about, we haven't mentioned Dylan Thomas very ah, much. Ah, no, yes. And, um, you know, for good reason, because the programme's yeah. about... There's a poem, um, Lament for Prithach, which begins, When I was young, when I was young, Were you ever young, Prithach? A rich farmer, cows in the byre, sheep in the pen, A brown egg under every hen. And I can't help but think about that. Uh, this was written after Fernhill. Yes. And, and um, sort of, you know, Fernhill with this beautiful sort of picture of an idyllic yes. childhood on the farm. Yeah, yeah, and then yeah, yeah. Him bringing in, you know, his sort of uh, experiences of the gaunter world. Yes. And not actually sort of thumbing the nose a little yeah, bit. To, yeah, um, yeah. The very popular and rock star poet that Dylan Thomas yes. would have been before, yeah. before he died. Yeah. yeah, it must be that because when I was young, is is an opening line of Dylan Thomas. It is isn't it? Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, well, that is interesting because in the biog it says uh, he admired Fernhill, he admired Under Milkwood, but he considered Dylan Thomas to be a bad influence on other writers. Right. right. Uh, I mean, it, it, it's sort of spurious to compare them, really. And mm. Dylan Thomas was so out on his own in terms of his really creative, amazing new use of language. As you say, the the... R.S. Thomas, particularly precise and accurate, and, the, and Dylan Thomas, this sort of vast yeah, canvas, yeah. splashing words across the page. Yeah, 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 yeah. And R.S. Thomas, probably much more disciplined. And mm. he, he mentions Yeats quite a few times in his poetry. Yes. And, and so I think there's, there was a, yeah, in fact, there's one, one poem, you know, about, uh, I don't know, it's an imagined or a real railway journey with Yeats. Yes. He, he obviously had a lot of respect for Yeats, and, and, yeah. and quite rightfully so. Yeah. Yes, mm. and I think he liked T.S. Eliot, although mm -hmm. T.S. Eliot turned him down, Faber turned him down for publication at, at one point. He liked Wallace Stevens a lot, the American, and Wallace Stevens wrote a poem about blackbirds, and he wrote a response to that, I think. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And he liked Shakespeare, and he liked Blake. 
he wasn't so keen on Seamus Heaney mm-hmm. and shared a view that Seamus Heaney didn't write for the year. Right. Yeah. So, so, but I mean, you've got to expect a bit of bitchery, haven't you? <laughs> <laughs> I find him a kind of enduring poet because he is a slow burn and he asks us to think. So you can't just read his poem poetry once and then go away. You have to go back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He thought Sylvia Plath, I'm afraid to say, was an example of female hysteria. But he thought Ted Hughes was okay. (laughs) Ted Hughes, you can sort of see. Yeah, yeah, you can. Yeah, be very um, odd if he didn't. The birds and the landscapes and the the, the nature. Yeah, 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 yeah. There's a great veterinary line here about uh, a poem called The Welsh Hill Country. Too far for you to see the fluke and the foot rot and the fat maggot gnawing at the skin of the small bones. Oh, <laughs> the, the sheep are grazing at Bulch of Edwin, arranged romantically in the usual manner on the bleak background of bald stone. <laughs> What's that poem called? It's called The Welsh Hill Country. Oh. Yeah, that's, yeah, that very closely relates to my. If you like veterinary experiences, liver fluke is still a massive problem in sheep farming. And, yes, and um, and uh, he's obviously very aware of that. Yeah, and very, yeah, yeah, very close to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Great. Yeah. Well, I think on that note we will finish. And um, thank you very much, Aris Thomas, and thank you, Lewis. Who it's really great that we're able to record this with you before you go back to New Zealand, and we're deeply appreciative of it. It's been fun. It's been uh, fun. Uh, Thank uh, you very much for uh, inviting me. And it's, it's great to have your perspective, actually, really good. And you're the first man on the podcast, which is fantastic. Mm. <laughs> Privileged indeed. So, all our recording equipment will be working properly today. <laughs> A joke. Well, not quite. And thank you, Emma. And. Uh, Notes to go with this show will be on our website and our Facebook page. Thanks a lot for listening.